Welcome to the Venture Church Podcast. This sermon was taken from the life of the church. For more messages like this, please see our website, www.venturechurch.co.za. We hope you enjoy this message. So we've already completed the first part of our series in Galatians, and we've had a bit of a break over the last couple of weeks. The letter itself easily splits into into three kind of sections, three movements of thought through what Paul is wanting to share with the Galatians and what we're hearing from him in the letter. In chapters one and two, and, and what's amazing about this is how each of these sections is launched by the, a wonderful phrase. So chapters 1 and 2 start with Paul saying, Paul, an apostle, not from man, nor by men, but through Jesus Christ. And the whole section talks about the true gospel, the one true gospel. Then chapters 3 and 4 starts with, oh, foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? And they talk about the unity, the continuity of the gospel. And then the third section, chapters 5 and 6, starts with, for freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and don't be subject again to a yoke of slavery. It talks about the spirit of the gospel. So today we take our first excursion into this second section, the unity of the gospel. Paul's building on the ideas that he's already set down, the idea of there's only one true gospel. There's only one gospel. There's only one thing God has, is, and will do. He only has a plan A. Just as he doesn't have a worship team, he has a worship team. He doesn't have a plan B. He only has plan A. So this is, this is the theme that he's now developing. Having stated, affirmed, and explained to them there's only one gospel, he's now going to show them that this is the gospel that there has always been. He's saying in Jesus, it's come to a fruition, to a, a new level of revelation, understanding, explanation. But it's the same gospel. And he spends a lot of time, and as we're going to get to see over the next couple of weeks, he uses Abraham as one of his core examples of that. Elsewhere in the New Testament, he traces it through the whole Old Testament. But he spends some time working this through. Why? He's still got one goal in mind, and that's to show the Galatians that what they have experienced in their salvation wasn't some aberration. It wasn't some exceptional circumstance. It wasn't some, something weird, out of the ordinary. It wasn't caused by their emotions. It was a reality that God had worked in them and that he wanted to continue working out in and through them. And so he, he starts this way. And just, by the way, if you haven't listened or read Galatians recently, we 
still have our Digging Deeper podcast that has various uh, audio versions of Galatians for you to listen to. I encourage you, read it through, listen to it through again a couple of times. This is a wonderful letter. We pick up Galatians again in chapter 3, at the beginning specifically. I want you to notice this isn't chapter 1. I know that's really obvious, but this isn't where he started. He's already laid a foundation, and now he has the freedom to say, You foolish Galatians! Who has cast a spell on you before whose eyes Jesus was publicly portrayed as crucified? I only want to learn this from you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by believing what you heard? Are you so foolish? After beginning by the Spirit, are you now finishing in the flesh? Did you experience so much for nothing? If in fact it was for nothing. So then, does God give you the Spirit and work miracles among you by your doing works of the law? Or... Is it by believing in what you heard? This is a a wonderful passage. It's a little shocking as well. Oh, Galatians, I love you. You fools! (laughs) It's not subtle. So when when I read this through the first time, I thought, oh, he's calling them morons. I'm sure you're aware that the one of the Greek words for foolishness is moros from which we get our English word moron. It turns out that uh, moros has this uh, connotation of moral foolishness. And it isn't the word that's used here. Rather, he uses a word that means something like, you're not being very smart at the moment, or even better, you've not thought this thing through. You're acting in a way that makes me realize that you've not joined the dots. Of course, you foolish Galatians sounds a whole lot more. And that is what he's saying. But what he's emphasizing is the fact that you are living self inconsistently. What you say you believe and how you're acting is at loggerheads with one another. So it's not a moral kind of foolishness. It's really, oh, dare I use this word in church. It's a rational foolishness. It's a not having thought it through. And this idea of using our brains as Christians has seen a lot of negative uh, publicity over probably the last 200 years. And there's a good reason for that, because with the explosion of knowledge that's happened over the last 200 years, yes, I really do mean 200 years, not just since the internet, it's just easier to get to a lot of it now than it used to be 100 years ago. With the explosion of knowledge, there was also an explosion of questioning. And not all of the answers that came were helpful. So... A whole group of the church decided, well, if nothing good, which is already an exaggeration, comes from using our brains, then let's stop using them. 
I know that sounds really far-fetched, but sometimes our lifestyles as believers look like that is true. We don't examine the Scripture. I find myself sometimes when, I, when I'm reading portions of Scripture that I'm not that familiar with, I find myself reading through long chunks of them and then thinking, what have I just read? I'm not sure that it made any sense to me. And sometimes that's true. It didn't make a lot of sense to me. But at least I've realized that it didn't make any sense to me. If we just keep reading and think, oh, well, it's more like we're reading a book of magic. And I'm going to come back to this idea in a second because that's what Paul does. We can make use of our brain. I want to suggest to you, maybe you think this is heretical, that our faith is reasonable. We don't believe in faith. We don't believe in the experience of becoming a Christian. We believe in Jesus. There is content to our faith. There is substance. There's reality. And He is Jesus. We believe in Him. He has revealed Himself to us. And because of that, we believe in something. Our faith is reasonable. We can talk about Him. We can talk about what He's revealed to us. That's what I mean by reasonable or rational. He wants us to know Him. We sang about it earlier. To know Him and to make Him known. Being a Christian is not about being in the business of trying to give people goosebumps. It's about bringing them under the lordship of Jesus. And this is where Paul is going. He goes on, though, and says, Who's cast a spell on you? Or my old NIV said, Who's bewitched you? I went to look this up because it's such a, nice, such a nice word. And it does indeed mean bewitched in the most literal sense. Literally, it means to exert an evil influence through the eye. What on earth does that mean? Yes, this is partly where the phrase giving them the evil eye comes from. But it is wrapped up in magic and witchcraft. Who has bewitched you? Who has set their evil eye on you? And he, he, it's, it's, a, it's an amazing picture because he picks up on it. Because he immediately says after this, before whose eyes was Jesus Christ clearly shown to be crucified. So he's, he's making a, a clever word picture, pun. But he's saying, I've shown you the reasonableness of your faith. So how did you come to get caught up in all this weird speculation and hidden mysticism and whatever else bewitchment means? He's contrasting the reasonableness of believing in Jesus with the unreasonableness of believing in other stuff. For the Galatians, adding other stuff or going back to other stuff that had been done away with. We take 
this idea of bewitchment as, uh, as a metaphor. In the days of, of Paul, it was quite literal. People really had a much keener uh, awareness of the spiritual world, but they also had a, a much more intense fear of spiritual things. So he's really making a, a strong statement. Who has bewitched you? Who's caught you up in their spiritual sneakery and trickery? Because you're going to end up in fear through that thing. It's interesting to me, and this is just an aside, that one of the primary ways we get to see the spread of the gospel through the ancient um, Mediterranean and Middle Eastern world is through the presence of charm bracelets. So, you know, if you trundle out to Jula, you can buy a charm bracelet today. Normally, I don't know, people put uh, things, things on them. What? Coffee cups, yes. And, and other little uh, cute little unicorns that, I don't know, stuff on there. But uh, a charm bracelet spell. You think about the language is a bracelet of charms, spells, things that will ward away evil. Just by the way, I'm not having a go at charm bracelets. Please hear what I am saying, what I'm not saying. I'm telling you how they, where they originated. A piece of jewelry is one thing. When you put faith in that piece of jewelry to deliver you from evil, that's something completely different. So that's what charm bracelets were. And the, it's significant because we found a lot, we, the royal we, archaeologists over the last 200 years <laughs> have found a lot of these charm bracelets, and many of them have recognizable Christian symbols on them, like the cross. Not only the cross, but the cross. And where we find these charms on these charm bracelets, you can see that the effect of the gospel has come to bear. That's not, by the way, the same as saying that these people were Christians. It, it's, it fascin it's fascinating to me when I've, I've read through that literature because some of these guys believe, oh, no, no, these Christians, they wore these charm bracelets. No, as Paul says to the Galatians, how foolish! You can't be bewitched unless you've been bewitched to a different gospel. So we can see what, what, the effect of the gospel and how fast it moved because there, there are pretty good ways of being able to date many of these things. And the gospel spread far. The other thing that interests me about those ancient charm bracelets is the fact that the power of the gospel was known to deliver. The other thing it makes me think of is the seven sons of Sceva in Acts, who also knew the power of the gospel, but not the person of Jesus, and got beaten up for it. But we can know the person of Jesus and his power. That's his intention, that's his desire, that's his purpose for us. And that's what he's saying the Galatians, you need to live out of. So I mentioned the fact that he's making this play on the words, 
the word eyes in this case. He's saying, who's given you the evil eye? Well, whose eyes were it who saw clearly Jesus portrayed as crucified? It's interesting to me that that's how he chooses to depict the gospel. There can be no true gospel without a recognition of Jesus Christ crucified. It is the most scandalous part of the gospel. A dead, publicly humiliated, executed leader. It's utterly scandalous. And the claim of the resurrection is so utterly unprecedented that the scandal is just increased. But Paul says without seeing that and embracing by faith the truth of it, there's good evidence to believe in the resurrection. That's what he was saying to them. And that's what the gospel still says to us today. There's good evidence to believe in the resurrection of Jesus. The fact that we can't repeat it as a scientific experiment does not invalidate the evidence. Paul says, and it's a question, by the way, you need to check that little question mark at the end. It comes across much, uh, much clearer in the Greek. It's a, and it's what's called a first... Um, can't think. My grammar's gone out of my head. I suppose of all the things to lose in your life, grammar is not one of the worst. It's a first-class conditional question. In Greek, you can um, infer the answer that the questioner is expecting from the form of the question. Well, you can sometimes in English, too. But it's, it's never ambiguous in Greek. First-class condition, conditionals always expect a positive response. Who was it? Well, who are you talking to? The Galatians. Well, then they are going to have to say, according to Paul, it was in front of us. We did see the gospel presented to us. We did see Jesus clearly crucified. We understand that. And, he, and because of that, we recognize, understand, and have experienced the reality that he is the power of God to salvation and beyond. He presses on. Verse 2. I only want to learn this from you. Now he's going he's to play around with, the, with what he's already said. How did you receive the Spirit? Was it by keeping Torah, observing Torah, or was it by receiving the promise of God by faith? Again, it's a rhetorical question. By faith and faith alone. Verse 3, he goes back to the inconsistency of their thinking. He uses that word foolish, and it's the same word again. Unthought through. And this is, this is fascinating to me because he's pushing the Galatians towards the logical outcome 
of their experience and the revelation of the gospel. He's pushing them towards that. He's herding them even. He's like a a spiritual sheepdog driving the sheep towards the pen of safety in Jesus. And he's not letting them go. He's not letting them get away with some half-hearted gospel, substant way gospel, but he's driving them towards a consistent way of living. It's one of the things that we battle with enormously in modern society, where it is very much on us to decide what is truth. It is one of the greatest modern scandals of the gospel, is it makes absolute claims both to truth and to our lives. Both things are, ironically, anathema to modern society. So don't be surprised when you find these things profoundly challenged in ways that you could never have foreseen just by going around being, buying fruit. The gospel will be challenged. The radical, the, and I do mean this, radical faith, the, dearie me, <laughs> the radical claim of the gospel that is received by faith, by our faith, is still offensive. Galatians, uh, verse 4, yeah, we're still in Galatians. Chapter 3, we're now hitting verse 4. He continues after driving them towards, hey, what's more consistent with how you came to know Jesus in the first place? He's now saying, guys, this is your testimony, verse 4. This is your testimony. You've experienced the outpouring of the Spirit in your lives personally. You've experienced the power of God expressed in miracles and signs and wonders in your own life. Be consistent with what you have experienced of the gospel. So Paul drives this argument to its own conclusion. And he doesn't allow the Galatians to slip out some easy way without being prepared to get, for them to give an answer for what they're doing. And I want to, I want to apply this to us in my last couple of minutes. Because one of the greatest challenges that we as, as modern believers face is living consistently with our faith in Jesus. Because it is assaulted on every side by the attitudes of those around us, by what we read, by what we see, I would have said on the television, on the internet, It is assaulted, both at the uh, obvious, superficial level and at the, the, the unconscious, subconscious, implied level. And this stuff eventually can easily wear us down so that we become or we start to live inconsistently with the gospel that we have received. 
So I want to quickly scan through three, uh, the, the, the progress that, that Paul's pointing out here. First of all, he tells the Galatians, you are foolish. You're foolish because you believed in Jesus, you were saved, and then you added all sorts of unnecessary things to your life. And you made them as important as receiving Jesus. Well, none of us do that. Or not consciously, anyway. The other things that Paul was referring to were good things in themselves. The Torah was good. He doesn't make a huge issue of that here in Galatians, but he does in Romans, where he's working through a similar uh, thought pattern. So it's not that we're necessarily adding evil to our lives. It's that we are trying to make things that are good ultimate. Only the gospel. Only Jesus. Only by faith. So foolishness is to think that our... It's foolish not to think our faith through once we believed in Jesus. I'm not talking about getting a degree... I'm not talking about being a boffin. I'm not talking about all these uh, intellectual uh, ideas that we have. I'm talking about getting to know him and what has happened to us better. If you are given a fancy piece of equipment as uh, as a gift, what do you do with it? You don't switch it on and admire it but have no clue how to use it? You invest your time, effort, and energy into learning how it works in order to be able to use it to its fullest abilities. And in so doing, you honor the one who gave you the gift. That is how we should receive our salvation not become static or stagnant in our knowledge of Jesus, but grow daily. It's one of the key reasons why we make such a big issue of our daily discipleship disciplines. Reading our Bible, praying, talking to Jesus, and worshiping as part of that. By worship, I don't just mean singing. You can sing in the shower, you can sing in the car. Worship is more than that, but it's certainly not less than that. We need to think through what happened to us when we came to know Jesus. If we don't, that's foolishness. This is what Paul is accusing the Galatians of doing, of being foolish, not thinking through what had happened to them. What happens when we don't deal with this kind of foolishness? When we become aware of the fact that we're not thinking through what Jesus has done for us, and we don't do anything about it, we can easily fall into deception. And deception is not just about bad patterns in our life. It's not just about wrong thinking. Deception has a spiritual root because it's ultimately about spiritual disobedience. When Paul is saying, you haven't thought through your faith, if he's he's issuing a challenge, if we do not take up that challenge, 
If we do not try and live consistently, if we do not get to know Him better, we are in disobedience. And repeated disobedience becomes a spiritual stronghold. It becomes deception in us. And deception has a spiritual root and needs to be dealt with primarily spiritually. Deception happens when we go with the flow and we don't get the Lord involved in what we want to do. So deception is not accidental. Oh, I was deceived. No, I was deceived. But I was deceived by consistently choosing the wrong way. And if that offends you, I'm sorry, but ownership of the challenges that we face is the first step towards victory over them. Oh, I have such a terrible habit in my life. I can't get over it, so I'm going to indulge it. Ownership, it is a terrible thing. I'm going to fight this thing till the day I die. I don't know if you've ever asked yourself this about Paul in 2 Corinthians, the thorn in the flesh, whatever it was. Do you think after he had had his chat with Jesus and Jesus had, had said to him, no, my grace is sufficient for you, that he then thought, oh, well, let me give up and enjoy my thorn. Or let me just indulge it. No. The Lord was saying, you're going to fight this thing for the rest of your life. But you need to hear from my mouth that I have given you the power to overcome it every single time you fight it. Deception starts with consistent foolishness. But that's not the end of the journey. It's not the end of the journey for Paul in Galatians. It's not the end of the journey for the believer in Jesus. Because wisdom that overcomes deception, that overcomes foolishness, is available to all of us. James 3 verse 17 tells us, and, and because he's already said in James 1 verse 5, if you lack wisdom, ask God, because he will give uh, generously. And the, the, in, in chapter 3, he then says, and it produces good fruit. It is available to us. The, if you want to think about um, what biblical wisdom is, wisdom is the good application of knowledge. And if it is the good application of knowledge, then the obedience of faith is wisdom. The obedience of faith is a wonderful phrase that Paul uses at the beginning and end of Romans. Faith produces, biblical faith produces obedience to the gospel. There's a whole book in the Bible devoted to wisdom. How we find the wisdom of God, it's full of the wisdom of God. It's called Proverbs. <laughs> and in fact, the first quite a few chapters are devoted to this whole thing of what does it look like? How do I recognize it when I see it? And how do I keep it 
and not um, do what the Galatians were doing, and that is start off well but not necessarily finish very well. Ultimately, as Jesus tells us in John 16, 13, it is the Spirit who opens our minds to understanding the nature and the ways of God. So, foolishness, what uh, Paul is confronting the Galatians with, can lead to deception. But wisdom can, the wisdom of God can overcome deception. So we've seen that Paul transitions his letter in Galatians 3 from highlighting that there's only one true gospel to the necessity, unity, and coherence of the gospel, the reasonableness of the gospel. He's also told us that foolishness for the believer is trying to live any other way than the way that we came to know Jesus in the first place. So we don't start with, um, what do you call those, training wheels. And faith is our training wheels. Once we can get our training wheels off, we don't need faith anymore. No. He says there's nothing, there's no um, way of being a super Christian. There are only super Christians. Those who live by faith. Faith is reasonable, though. Repeated folly, repeatedly trying to add or find alternative things, easily leads to deception, which needs to be dealt with at a spiritual level with simple, profound, and radical obedience to the gospel. Because the obedience that comes from faith always leads us to the kind of freedom and fulfillment that is best for us. I wonder if I can ask you to stand. I want to lead us in just a response to the Lord, but I want to ask you a couple of questions. So if, you can, if you're comfortable, close your eyes, just so that you can think through for yourself the things that the Lord is, uh, is wanting to speak to you. Walking in wisdom requires a, a, a level of radical humility. Are you prepared to humble yourself under the hand of a loving God? A couple of weeks back I preached on you need to sort these things out in your own heart and mind. Do you really believe God is good? One of the reasons why we can't or don't live humbly is because we haven't sorted out in our hearts profoundly that God is really good and that what is best for Him is ultimately best for us. We have to do something to overcome our fears, especially the fears of Him asking us to do something that we don't want to or that he might not give us something that we do want. I want to ask you, have you ever lived in deception? All of us have, actually, at some stage, because we were sinners in need of a Savior, and we were deceived about how much we needed a Savior.
We need to bring those things before him in submission. We need to bring them to those that we trust in the life of the body so that we can work those things out together, be held accountable. The power of sin is in its secrecy. And wisdom, the power of God to overcome evil, is readily accessible to everyone who's prepared to put the time and effort in. So don't skimp on your daily discipleship. Lord, as you've spoken these things to us, I pray that you would strengthen us in our hearts, in our minds, in our spirits to follow hard after you. Lord, where we have allowed ourselves to be lazy or to be deceived, deliver us from evil. Lord, help us to put the things in place we need to, to become free, which is where you're taking us. It's where you were taking Paul's argument in Galatians. All of this was so that we might live free. Lord, we choose to humble ourselves. Even that statement is radical for us, Lord, because we are radical individualists and we want it to be our own authority. We embrace you, Jesus, as Lord, as the authority in heaven, on earth, and under the earth, not just now, but for all eternity. And we trust in you. Grant us that we may grow daily in godly wisdom for your glory and for our benefit too. In Jesus' precious name, amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon. We would love to know how this message spoke to you. Please connect with us through our website, www.venturechurch.co.za or through our various social channels.